Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for uh, your work in our world. Lord, that you have redemptive purpose, that you are uh, working things for your good. And Lord, we thank you that you are alive today and at work in our hearts and at work in our church and in this city. And Lord, we pray that you would move us, Lord, uh, out of apathy, out of complacency. Lord, that you would draw us deeper into a love for you and for one another. And that as we would look at your word this morning, you would speak and minister to us and uh, show us, Lord, how we are called to live, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Today's passage uh, highlights a pretty significant moment, of course, in, in the, the story of the Bible and in God's redemptive work. It's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which launches the church into her mission in the world. I think it's interesting if you, if you remember that Acts is written by Luke, and it's in many ways the sequel to Luke's gospel. And in Luke, right at the beginning of Luke, we have a spirit conception and a Bethlehem birth, right? And here in Acts, we get another spirit conception and now a Jerusalem birth, the birth of the church. Neat parallel there for us. But the passage is all about God's presence, God's promise, and then what happens to the people. And that's what I want to focus on. I've got three Ps. I worked out an alliteration. Look at that. Brilliant, right? God's presence, God's promise, and then God's people. And the first thing I want to look at is the outpouring of God's presence and just that initial reaction from the crowds. This happened, of course, on the Jewish feast of Pentecost, which was a, a feast before this event, right? This event is happening during what was a, a traditional Jewish feast. It was the second of the three major pilgrim feasts where people would come from, uh, Jewish people would come back to Israel. If they were living out in various other countries, they would pilgrim back to Israel for the feast, which is why there's groups of Jews from all different places later on in the story, right? It's because they're coming back for the Pentecost feast to celebrate together. And that feast marked the first fruits of the harvest. That's what that feast was about. And it's no small detail that as, uh, as the Lord sends the Holy Spirit upon the church, it is also a sign of the first fruits of the age to come. Of, of our communion with God and what God is wanting to do, uh, not just in his church, but for all the world to flood with his presence. Uh, it anticipates what will happen when Christ will come again and all the nations are gathered uh, to him where every knee will bow and tongue confess. And so you have a, a, it's almost like a snapshot or a foretaste of what's going to happen later. 
And so it's the day of Pentecost, a fitting day. Uh, I think it's so interesting how God uses these moments, almost these patterns where there's uh, deeper significance almost to the timing quite often than we might realize at first brush. But here's the coming of the Spirit. And the Spirit comes with an audible sound like wind and then a visible cue like fire. And of course, if we're familiar with our Old Testament's with Israel scriptures, fire and wind are often the sign of God's presence. And as we walked through Exodus uh, earlier, was it even this year? Or was it last summer? When we walked through Exodus, quite often, right, the wind and the fire are signs of God's personal presence, both both in Exodus, but throughout ancient Israel. So this is a sign of what God is doing, a God-initiated work in their lives. And of course, this has come on the end of a long season of prayer and waiting for the disciples. Jesus called them to wait and to pray. And now here comes the Spirit. It's easy, of course, to get wrapped up in all sorts of questions that we would want to come to the text with. Um, You know, how does, what does the gift of the Spirit look like? In, in different people's lives? Is speaking in tongues the only evidence? Is there a correct order of how things are to go? You know, you repent and then you receive the Spirit or then you're baptized in water. You know, how does that all work? And what's interesting is Luke doesn't pause the action to sort of give a little sermon on how exactly we're supposed to work out a formula. Uh, but what he does do is make it quite clear that all of the faithful followers of Jesus and makes a point of saying both the men and the women, not just the men, but male and female are filled with the Spirit of God following Jesus' ascension. Jesus has left and now he sent the Spirit uh, to be God's personal presence in and among his people. And and this will embolden them for the mission that they're called to do. And Paul later on will stop and reflect on what tongues means and what exactly is going on over in 1 Corinthians. But Luke (laughs) Luke doesn't stop. He's telling his story. He's telling us what's going on. And I like that Luke's emphasis is that the Spirit prompts the disciples to worship. He prompts the disciples to worship. They're declaring Jesus' mighty works. They're declaring the mighty works of God, and they're doing so in a variety of real human languages here in Acts 2. These are real human languages that that the visitors who have come for the feast... Uh, recognize as their own languages back home. And it's it's interesting, if you're reading the passage, look at verse 4, it says, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then verse 5, we get a little, it's almost like the camera pulls out of the house and we see the crowds around, all these ones in Velma, you pronounce them all so wonderfully, bless you, from all these different areas, all these different countries. You get a snapshot of these crowds, and then suddenly it's like the 
the followers from the upper room are somehow outside. You know, it's almost like the actions just kind of move from out of the house, out into the crowd, outside. And uh, and then Peter starts Peter starts speaking. It's almost like the it's almost like the doors get blown off the house, right? And suddenly we're outside. Now, what's interesting is this crowd of of pilgrim Jews from all over the world. Again, they hear the disciples proclaiming the mighty works of God in their own language or in their own dialects from back home. It would be like you were traveling in a foreign country and suddenly you hear someone speaking in English in a place where you weren't expecting it, right? And they are, they're praising God, uh, speaking about God's wonderful works. And notice there's two responses. Well, they're all amazed, verse 12. They're all amazed and perplexed. So it's shocking uh, and puzzling, right? What, what is, what's going on? And some are asking, well, what does it mean? What's it about? And others start mocking, saying they're filled with new wine. And I think that is such a wink uh, to the reader. Well, of course it's new wine. Better than they, They're speaking truer than they know, right? This is, of course, new wine. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, points us back to John 2 and the wedding in Cana, uh, where Jesus takes the six jars of water and then turns it into wine. This is the new life of the Spirit, right? And so the others are mocking, uh, they're drunk, and in a way they are. But notice this. It isn't the miracle of the speaking in tongues that brings people to repentance. And I was sort of struck by this as I was preparing this message. It's the, the speaking in tongues and the sort of the dramatic moment of the Spirit coming gets people's attention but it's Peter and his sermon and the Spirit working through Peter and through the sermon that brings people into relationship with Jesus. That sparks the, the desire to come into forgiveness and life with Jesus. And I was struck by this, that... Uh, the, t- the, the moment, the charismatic moment, and the signs and wonders of this moment are paired with the clear speaking of God's word. And that is what brings people into repentance and relationship with Jesus. And I think those two working together can be a very powerful dynamic. Sometimes the moving of the Spirit gets our attention especially if we don't know Jesus and we see something happening that is surprising, like someone getting healed or a prophetic word or something. And it gets our attention, but we then need to hear what it means. What does it mean that God would heal this one or that someone is speaking in tongues about what God is doing? What's that about? And then there is opportunity to point them to Jesus. The other thing that's so interesting about this passage is you've got Jewish pilgrims from, from all these different nations. It's, it's a kind of, it's, it's nations from a lot of the known world at the time. They're gathered for the feast. And I can't, uh, I was thinking about other 
images that this can remind us of, and it's similar to when the Jews come back from exile, where they're in foreign countries and then come back to Israel after the end of their exile to Babylon. And uh, if you remember in the Old Testament, when that happens, they seek to rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple, but God's Spirit never comes to refill that second temple. And there is a waiting for God's Spirit to come again. And here at last, he's coming. And it's almost like saying the exile is finally over. You came out geographically. You came out physically. But spiritually, you're still in exile. And of course, what does Peter do? He points them to their need for salvation. And so the announcements, uh, you know, the exile is over. Christ has come. And, of course, the word is going to go out to the nations. And the idea that all the nations are kind of there hearing this early is almost a foretaste again of what's going to happen as the gospel message is going to go out. Lots of people, too, have talked about this as the reversal of the Tower of Babel, right? So at Babel, people in their arrogance are scattered as God divides their speech. But now in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, people in prayerful humility are gathered together again as God uh, sparks praise through the Holy Spirit. Now, some are surprised, like we said, some scoff, some mock, and that shouldn't surprise us because that was kind of the response to Jesus' ministry a lot of the time, right? People being surprised, but also people mocking him. And it's interesting, again, that the signs and wonders don't don't produce the faith. I think that's so interesting because so often we long to see the signs and wonders, but we, we need to notice here, I think, in our text that the faith that God is looking for in people requires both the hearing and the explaining of the good news. The signs and wonders wake us up so we'll listen. But then we, we need to be called to repentance and to faith. And this is exactly what Peter does in the second section, right? So they've, the people are woken up to ask what is going on, but then Peter launches into this sermon to explain what it means. I was thinking about Peter and how not long before this passage on the night of Jesus' arrest, Peter comes to that charcoal fire where he's questioned by the servant girl and the result is a personal betrayal of his friend, Jesus, which would have torn Peter to his core. And then after the resurrection, Jesus goes looking for Peter and brings Peter to a shore lunch where there's another charcoal fire, right? Brings him back to the place of his betrayal. And there works out Peter's forgiveness. He's, he feeds and renews Peter, restoring Peter. But now here's Peter again, and this time he's filled with fire. He's filled with the life-giving presence of God himself. And at this fire, he's, he's not betraying, nor is he really in need of restoration. He's ready to proclaim what it means to encounter the living God and to call the people into faith with Jesus. And so he's filled with the Spirit, and he stands with boldness and authority to preach the gospel. And the first thing he says is he just, he just dismisses the sarcastic accusation that they're drunk by basically saying, guys, it's only 9 in the morning. Are you serious? Right? 
That's basically what he says. It's only the third hour. Come on, it's only nine in the morning. It's a comic reply. And then he starts to preach. And Peter knows his scriptures. He's an uneducated guy, but he knows his scriptures. And he goes through three Old Testament quotes. I'm going to only focus on the Joel 2 passage, uh, which Velma read for us. But in Joel 2, there was a promise that when the last days arrived, God would pour his spirit on all flesh. And Peter does more than simply quote Joel 2, but he's interpreting it. He says, now the last days are happening right here before you. And he connects the outpouring of the Spirit uh, and what, who Jesus is and what he's done to the beginning of these last days. The old age of the, the quenched Spirit, we could say, is over. And the new age, the last days have arrived. It's echoing what Moses yearned for in Book of Numbers where Moses said, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. That's been a yearning throughout Israel's scriptures. And again, Luke makes a point of saying it's the sons and the daughters, men and women. There's a male-female duality that receive God's blessing that we see lived out out in the early Christian movement. And so, Peter says, God is fulfilling the the promise that he made to Joel through this outpouring of the Spirit. And in that Joel passage, as Velma was reading it, you'll notice, verse 17, it says, In the last days it shall be, I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. But then look a little further on, verse 20 Now we're getting into some kind of revelation, apocalyptic-sounding stuff, right? The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes. And if you remember when we did the book of Revelation, we talked often about the day of the Lord, which was a day of exciting anticipation when God was going to come. And if you were, uh, and, you know, you are trusting in God and and excited that he's arriving, that's a great day. But if you are working in justice and oppression and if you're against God, when God shows up, it's not necessarily a lot of fun because God's going to come and set things right. And there's a, a justice that will happen on that day. And that is why in verse 21, there's a call, those... Uh, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That in that day, as God's uh, purposes are being worked out in the world, there will be a, a, a turning towards him. There's a need to turn towards God, says Peter. And that is where he goes in his sermon. You know, you've seen the Spirit at work. You've seen us regular folks. We're made alive and empowered by God now. Come and repent and believe, and he goes through. You know what happened with Jesus. You've heard what this was about, how he was killed. And now Peter presents Jesus as the Lord himself. And he points all of them to come and repent and believe. And how do they respond? I really like the 
the call in verse 37, after Peter lays out what's happened. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So the speaking in tongues gets their attention. And then they hear the message of what it means. And then there is conviction and a need to respond to the truth of what has been relayed to them. What shall we do? And Peter, verse 38, says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And some here, again, like, like I mentioned earlier in the sermon, want to see the specific uh, formula of the events, right? You got to repent and then be baptized and then you receive the gift. But it's not clear that Luke intends it to be read that way because elsewhere in Acts, um, we find things are kind of spun around a little bit. Uh, Sometimes there's forgiveness and repentance and then the gift of the Spirit and then there's water baptism. And so I think it's important for us uh, to realize that we can like to make that into formulas, but Luke himself wants to emphasize, here's what happened. It wasn't about getting a formula just so, but the main point was the people through the power of the Spirit and through the preaching of the Word are brought to a place where they ask, what must we do? And Peter calls them to turn away from one way of living, to repent and to be baptized and to follow Jesus. And as they do so, they will receive the gift of the Spirit. It simply happens is how it comes across in this passage. Baptism is is the appropriate response to our new life in Jesus because it illustrates outwardly what's happened inwardly, the new life that God has brought about in us, the cleansing of sin. Uh, It's also a, a symbolic participation. Paul later on Is it Paul or Peter? I can't remember the passage off the top of my head. But there's a a sense of we are now joined in Jesus' death and resurrection through the waters of baptism. And so I think it's important for us to put it this way, that when repentance and belief in Jesus happen, water baptism and the gift of the Spirit are soon to follow. They're meant to follow soon after. The, The three are meant to go together in some fashion. Not that the order is something to get too hung up on, but the actions are important. There's a repentant element where we realize our faults and we turn away from our sin and we choose to follow Jesus. And there's a charismatic element, we could say, where we uh, encounter the presence of the Holy Spirit and begin to live in that empowering and in that boldness. And then there's also, we could say, a, a sacramental element the water baptism part, by sacrament, I don't mean that doing it saves you or somehow uh, is, you, know, you need to do that to somehow be saved, but that it is God using physical means to speak to a symbolic reality. It's uh, in the same way that we, ha- we come to the communion table, speaks to something spiritual. And so we see those same elements here in Acts 2, repentance and belief, people needing to respond to the message of Jesus, to recognize the truth. They're cut to the heart. There's something emotional about it. They recognize their own guilt and their own sinfulness. And then there's also a call to baptism, to live out publicly. 
uh, what God is wanting to do in their hearts. Peter doesn't make it an option. He doesn't say, well, it'd be really nice if you also got water baptized, right? He, he just expects them to. Baptism is linked to their awareness that their sins are forgiven. And in Acts, every conversion or reference to conversion mentions baptism. Baptism just constantly is associated with conversion, right? In, in uh, Acts 8, which we'll get to later, the Ethiopian just distinctively knows that if he believes the gospel, he needs to be baptized, right? He just knows that. If you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. You need to be baptized. And third, the reception of the gift of the Spirit, right? Peter speaks as the Spirit as a gift that his hearers can confidently assume will be granted to them. And this is part of their believing and their repenting and their being baptized. And this is what a, a full, a full multifaceted conversion looks like, we could say. It's not just saying the sinner's prayer, though that is fine. But there's a call to true repentance. There's an emotional response. What shall we do? There's a call to lay down our lives and to follow Jesus. There's a call to walk that out in the waters of baptism. Uh, and to become part of a Christian community, which we'll see next week when we talk about the fellowship of the believers. In the end, God's empowering presence fills his people. It wakes up the people around them who ask, what then shall we do? What does it mean? And as Peter speaks the testimony of what God is doing, it cuts to the heart and people are ready to respond. And I think about us today, I, I don't want to assume that all of us here are Christians, though I think most of us are, but there's a call for us to respond to Jesus. We too need to ask, what does it mean? What's it about? How do we respond? What shall we do? Peter says, repent, be baptized. Repent and believe, says Jesus in Mark beginning of Mark's gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Last days have come. We're called to respond to the message of the gospel. We're called to be baptized, folks. If you haven't been baptized in water and you're a Christian today, I encourage you to get baptized. Come talk to me about it. We'd love to do it. It's a celebration of what God is doing in your life. Uh, what has happened inwardly now done visibly, outwardly, uh, like, a, like a good bath, washing away our sins. But there's also a call to experience the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, to know the gift of the Spirit in our lives. I was reading about being filled with the Spirit. I came across this article by Andrew Wilson, he was reflecting, I'm going to end with this, he was reflecting on Ephesians 5.18 where Paul calls the church to be filled with the Spirit, but he's saying it to the church. He's saying it to people who are already filled with the Spirit. So how does that work? And if you look a little closer at that verse, it's a passive verb. It's like, it's like he's saying, keep on being filled. Be being filled with the Spirit. And it's kind of a weird thing. Like, well, how do I... How do I obey a verb that is happening to me? It would be like saying, be phoned by your mother. Well, how do I do that? She has to phone me, right? I can't be being phoned by my mother if I'm initiating it. God initiates. 
the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. But we can be receptive and responsive to the power of the Spirit. And as Wilson walks through this article, he says, Paul's original wording of being filled with the Spirit would have made most people think of air, not a pitcher of water. Sometimes when we talk about being filled with the Spirit, we can almost have a visible image of, of something that holds water. And, and with the call to be filled again, we think, like, am I leaky? Is it coming out somehow? And i, I got to get it topped up again, you know? But the image, again, of Spirit in the original languages is of God's breath, of air. And a, a better image for us would be a sailboat, not a glass of water. When you're sailing, is being filled with the wind an experience or something you have to also align yourself to do? Well, it's both. Catching the wind on a sailboat is an experience. It happens, and off you go. But there's also things you can do to align the sails to experience that infilling of the wind. And so when Paul calls us to be filled with the Spirit, we're called to pursue the experience of the Holy Spirit. Paul uses that language of filling and drenching and drinking and pouring. We rely entirely on the Spirit. But we're also called to develop habits in our own lives, to tune our hearts to be attentive to what the Spirit is doing to line the sail up so that when the wind is blowing, we catch that wind. And I think of uh, what the disciples are doing before the, the presence of the Spirit comes as they are in prayer. They're together and they're in prayer. And that, perhaps more than anything, is the way in which we can adjust the rigging of the sailboat in our lives to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit. Folks, we need to be people of prayer. We need to be people of prayer. So to that end, would you pray with me? And let's pray for the needs in our community. And let's also pray for uh, what's going on in our world. But let's pray also that God would move and minister in our hearts today, that we'd catch the wind afresh of his Holy Spirit. Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this morning that we can gather and worship. We thank you for all these ministries that are starting up again, and we thank you that we're able to uh, continue to gather and be discipled and to serve and to care for those around us. We pray, Jesus, you'd show us uh, where you would have us minister and serve in this season. Lord, as we think about Acts 2 and this amazing moment, the outpouring of the Spirit, of Peter's first sermon emboldened by your Spirit and the people's response, Lord, we too want to be people that have responded to what you, Jesus, have done in the world. Lord, we want to, we want to repent and believe. And many of us have, Lord. But I pray that uh, today, if there's any here who don't know you, there would be a call that would go out today, Lord, from your heart to turn to you, to lay down our sin, and to live for you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, as Paul calls us in Ephesians, to keep being filled by the Spirit. 
Lord, we recognize that's something you initiate in our lives, but we can be open to it. And so, Lord, we just say today we are looking for the outpouring of your spirit in our lives in this time. Lord, we're looking for a fresh uh, filling today. We need to be emboldened like Peter to speak out your truth and live out your truth, Lord, the gospel. Lord, there's lots around us who don't have hope. And we don't always know what to say. But I pray that you would give us the confidence and, and assure us with the comfort of your spirit that we can point people to you. Lord, both in how we live, but also in how we speak. So, Lord, I pray that you would send us out from this place uh, as missionaries to the mission field. Lord, the mission field is where you've planted us. It's here in Dryden. We don't need to go very far to find those that need to hear the gospel. Lord, would you help us to love you and love our neighbor? And I pray that you would encourage us to be people of prayer, to be seeking your face, God. And that as we do so, we're adjusting the rigging in our lives to catch the wind of what you're doing. Lord, as your church, we pray that you'd continue to renew and to strengthen. Lord, that you would call people back who have been away. That you would soften our hearts, Lord, to what you would do in our lives at this time. Lord, we pray for healing for those that are in need of healing today. We think of those who are in the hospital and far away, that you would bless them today. And with the words you taught us, Lord, we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.